Welcome to the Civic Moment, where we talk to local and regional community leaders about their civic calling and discuss possibilities for our civic future. Today, we have Dr. Ness Sandoval, the Associate Director of St. Louis University's Geospatial Institute and an Associate Professor of Sociology. Dr. Sandoval's research tells stories using maps by looking at patterns that occur within that space and studying the spatial hierarchy of inequality in American cities. He founded two geospatial applied community projects, Demography for Democracy and Coding for Spatial Justice. Both projects are designed to empower community members to envision the future they want for their neighborhoods and to acquire the resources to make their visions happen. Welcome, Dr. Ness Sandoval. So I was born in Denver, Colorado, and that's where my dad's family was at when I was born. My mom is from uh, a small town just north of Colorado, Nebraska, called Scotts Bluff, and that's where they met. So I think, um, so the first three years we lived in Denver, and then my grandfather died, and then my mom decided uh, she wanted to come home to take care of her mom. And so we moved back to Nebraska when I was three. And so I think growing up, in this very small town in Nebraska was very influential on me as an, as an individual. Because this, uh, the name of the town is Scotts Bluff, but it's, it was very different town demographically than almost any city in Nebraska because it had a very large Mexican population. It, it, many people talked about it as a town that you would find on the border of Texas. It was about 30% Mexican, and this is 1970s. Um, and so for me, that having that type of um, makeup, I think, informed me a little bit about uh, issues of, of inequality, segregation that was happening in this very small town of 15,000 people um, that I thought, well, this is normal. But as I started to get older and travel to other cities, I'm like, well, the patterns that I saw that were very micro were patterns that I would see in Chicago, um, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., and so I'm like, this is maybe the norm, but it's not right. Um, so I think in terms of values, the, the issue was the issue of uh, equality, uh, you know, constantly changing, like, why, why are things unequal that shouldn't be promoting inequality? Equality? Uh, in my family, especially on my, on my mom's side, uh, education was a very important um, value, and so uh, because my, my grandparents on my mom's side were, were immigrants, part of the American dream was having access to education. And so not only did, did, you, did they promote and encourage high school graduation, but going on to uh, college was something that was really stressed, especially among the grandchildren, uh, which was my generation. So that was, that was a very important uh, uh, value. And, and I think this is the importance of family. Um, being able to um, rely on, you know, thinking of your cousins as your brothers and sisters, um, getting together. Uh, you know, I joke because things that we did when we were young would seem strange today for I think a lot of Americans. Like, you would just go to your cousin's house unannounced, but that was the norm. And I don't think this would happen today that you would just show up for dinner or breakfast unannounced. Usually we would text somebody or say, hey, let's, let's have a, a play date with cousins or something like that. That just, that was not our reality. The reality is a play date could happen at any time. You just have to be prepared. And so I kind of missed that element of my childhood because it doesn't exist today. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. I can just remember um, just being in a community of the neighborhood and you didn't make plans with the kids around you. You just kind of like walked outside and played with whoever was there. So I definitely relate to that. Um, and going back to kind of the spatial divide that you talked about noticing within your um, community growing up, could you tell us more about that and how it has now impacted your research? Sure, so I grew up in, um, so I grew up in the part of town that was called the Mexican part of town. And um, so we always refer to it as the barrio in, uh, but there was some there was some pretty strong uh, lines that people had, like Fifth um, Avenue, Ninth Street, uh, and so people always talked about that that was the dividing line. 
but for us growing up that that was that was normal these were just that this was our neighborhood and then uh, if you had money for the select few you got to live outside of the neighborhood but what I thought was kind of I think I was fortunate because my parents um I think because of the resources that we had, we had, had uncles and aunts who were going to college, had influenced my mom to send me to a private school. And so I did. I did go to kindergarten in our surrogated school. Uh, but when I started first grade, my mom intentionally put me into the private school, which was on the other part of town. And I was one of the few children in my neighborhood that had that opportunity. And so I, I really started, I don't have my friends anymore from kindergarten, they're not with me. Uh, and so I started to see what, what was happening in my school, my new school and my old friends where I, I went to um, religious class, we're still in the surrogated school through a church. Uh, so I had, I had got to see what was happening in, in both worlds. Um, and I, I started, there was, there was advantage. There were, I, I think I look back now and I go into the private school, I was in, I was in a privileged space. Um, and I think part of that, I was able to take advantage of it through, through education, just opportunities to, to be parts of different activities that just were not available um, to kids who did not go to the private school. I think being able to, to live life in both spaces kind of helped me um, recognize, I think at an early age, there's uneven access to opportunity. But I didn't really, I don't think about it. I think in retrospect, I think about it more academically and think, well, how did this happen? Because uh, I remember, I can just give you a small story because we have pictures. Um, our neighborhood didn't have infrastructure when I was growing up. So we didn't have, um, we had dirt roads. We didn't have um, infrastructure for sewage. And so when it rained, it just the water just sat there, and the 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 field across us was a cornfield, and so that was for us that was our playground was going into the cornfield, and so I remember um, that at that time they had the Chicano movement, and part of the Chicano movement was to address these inequalities, and so I remember them like one of the ones where we have to we have to put infrastructure in this neighborhood, like paved streets sewage pipes for the water runoff. Uh, and I remember I have pictures with my grandmother playing on the pipes that would soon become the sewage pipes. And then the cornfield got turned into a, a neighborhood park. So I was, I think in retrospect, I'm like, well, this was kind of, an, I got to live through that transformation of, there was some, I think some awareness that this was not right and that Something something basic as street pavement should be fixed. You don't recognize it as a kid. You can get older, you're like, well, yeah, this there was some intentionality to try to fix some things. It's really powerful how you talk about, you know, how this early life and these personal experiences kind of shaped your vision of looking at inequality. Why asking the questions of why is this happening in my area of town and, and noticing this, these kind of patterns and these things like that. Now, obviously, when you take some questions like this into academia. It becomes a question of data, right? Then, it's, then data starts to enter. So now, as a you know, a kid, phenomenologically, you're kind of like understanding it, experiencing it. But then in academia, there's this data question. I think when people hear the word data, a lot of folks recoil a bit inside. They're like, "Oh no, data." Um, and so, I, I guess one of the questions I have is, how do we make the general public feel more comfortable engaging with data? Um, and and kind of you know we are comfortable with experience, but how do we start to get more comfortable with data and talking about how data can inform? So I I think about this a lot because I would I would argue that um, our personal experiences is data, and so the first part of being comfortable with with quote unquote data is being comfortable with our experience, uh, how we how we lived and experienced schools or um, failed opportunities in your job, um, having children, that this is, this is part of our experience. So whenever I, whenever I teach demography, I kind of stress to my, to my students that our stories are in these data sets. And so we were, we're part of these 
data sets that have you know thousands of people in them. And so we're, we're trying to find out which group, which group we're in that have similar behaviors that we have or similar outcomes. I think part of having people get comfortable is being able to share their experience. Because I think I know that a lot of people, um, when, when they have these experiences, they, they don't like to share them because it could be a lot of trauma associated with these experiences and um, a lot of a lot of just negative things. And so they just want to, that's part, that's part of my past. And so they don't, they don't want to see the data. So I think part of it is being comfortable telling your story and seeing that your story is probably part of uh, a lot of stories that, that have similar parallels and, and um, experiences. And so I think that's, that's, that's one thing I um, try to stress. I think the other thing that I think it's unfortunate that's happened is uh, data got equated with math. And I, I would argue the way we teach math in the United States has has excluded a lot of people. Because the way we the way we kind of teach math is you get introduced to a, a set of concepts in one grade, and then you're you're promoted to the next grade, but you may only have 90% comprehension. And then you get promoted to the next grade, and you're like, oh, but that 10% is very important. And then you, you start to question your ability because like, oh, it's a little bit more difficult. And then you get promoted to the next level, and then you're missing another five percent. And then you, you keep going on and go, and then so a student gets they get into high school and they're like, I'm not good at math because they're they're probably missing 15 percent of the material. But this happened over their exposure to math in different grade levels. And I I I've seen it that if if you if you uh, go with the Montessori approach where you teach it to where the student's 100% competent and then they go to the next level, there is not this, there's not this phobia of math because they're 100, the, the building blocks are 100%. And so I've, I've, as I work with uh, older, especially uh, students who are coming back who are, who are trying to get a master's and it's just, a, it's a different mentality that, that you approach as a professor because a lot of professors teach these classes as though they're boot camp. And they make them very difficult. And if you can get through it, you, you're successful. Where I try to teach these classes through a form of empowerment. And it's about being competent at each level. And I've been, I think that's a different way of, of, of teaching math and statistics. And the students really enjoy the data. Because they're like, I get it. Um, but it, 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 it's a different approach of, um, of what data means. Um, and yeah, you do need you do you do need a set of math and stats skills, but th there's a different approach in terms of teaching it like a, a boot camp, where you you already know like I'm, I want to make sure that 30% of the students fail, versus I want 100 100% of my students to succeed. And I think too many of our classes that teach data statistics um, have this mentality that only a certain percentage are gonna get A's. And so my, I hope, at least in my work, um, it's, a, it's just a different paradigm, a different philosophy that I draw on. Yeah, I think that 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 actually makes a lot of sense. And when we talk about you know how the idea of math has, for a lot of folks, feels like it's been an exclusionary concept or paradigm for many folks. And so I appreciate you bringing that out. Um, but in, in, your, in your work, you know, with, with public policy and social policy, um, you know, you're definitely in tune with how data interacts with civic engagement, with policymaking. So I guess, could you tell me how data is important or, or what role does data play in civic engagement and particularly in policymaking? So I think, it, I think what I've seen, uh, especially over the past 15 years, uh, because of technology, that it's more accessible uh, to to everybody, uh, but that but the access is not equal to data, and so what what we've been trying to do in, in our work is to make it to make it equal to to people who who want it to tell the stories. But when it comes to public policy, um, I, I think people have stories and, and they have points that they want to present about how a policy should be implemented or things that they want to change. But ultimately, 
the question could be, do, do you have data to support that position or is this simply an anecdotal uh, experience? And so they're looking for um, data that that they have that, it goes back to like, they have a story and they, then they I think they, a lot of people understand that their story is not unique, but they're looking for objective data to say that I've told you this is my experience and it's, and it's an experience that's out there um, through, through different types of data sets that are available. And so what I've seen uh, when it comes to like grants, a lot of funding agencies want to see uh, outcomes and outcomes is uh, measured by, by data, right? Like, what, what is it that's being produced through, through this investment? And so you provide opportunities for people to um, learn how to use data for grants, um, to support renewing grants or going after new grants. We work with a lot of residents um, who are trying to grab data and analyze data for neighborhood development or to get a seat at the table or to talk about issues that are important that other people may not think are important. Just in the past week, um, I, the number of emails I'm getting from people about the possible uh, redistricting of the city, I, 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 this, was, this did not exist in 2010. We, we didn't have it, but there was redistricting happening at the state. As in 2010, and I can tell you that I participated in that discussion. But the level of participation that's happening today, it's not even in the same realm in 2010. Like, people are engaged. They, they've, they've seen these maps, they've seen the data, and they, they, want, they want to touch it. They want to touch the data. They want it on their computer. They want to be able to replicate what, what's going on in, on those proposed maps. And so I think that's a good thing. Uh, because I did, this did not exist in 2010 where people were emailing me saying, I want to touch data. I, I want it on my computer. And it, it's, I'm getting emails every day, literally every day over the past seven days. Can, can you share data? Can you share data? Can you share data? Can you share data? And that's a good thing because uh, as I mentioned to, to somebody a couple of days ago, the data belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to policymakers. And, uh, you should demand it. And so I, I think there's a sense that people feel like they should have a say in public policy, whether it's redistricting the wards in St. Louis, redistricting that's happening at the state level, uh, how, how resources are allocated uh, for opioid um, intervention, uh, COVID relief packages, um, where you get these booster shots. Uh, I think there's a, we're in a new era where, where people understand that um, they can be vocal about those public policy decisions, but they need data to advocate of, of where those services should be located, how they should be located. I think that's a good thing. Uh, and it definitely didn't exist in 2000, at least from when I was in working with the data because it, it just took so slow to get data out, but it took, 24, it took 24 hours. Once the census released it, within 24 hours, we were able to get the data out. And so that's, that's pretty incredible uh, what's happened over the past two decades. I think in 2030, when we think about the role of data in public policy, it, it, it's, just, it's, a, it's a, gonna be a new era where, uh, like I said, the data belongs to the people. And um, a lot of public policy makers don't wanna give it, I could give you my, my own stories of how difficult it's been to get data, um, but, but people are demanding it. And I think that's a good thing because it does belong to the people. Yeah, and I know that we've um, read and looked at some of your data analysis from the last census, the 2020 census, um, that's showing the incredible growth in St. Louis, um, specifically from Latino, Asian, and other minorities. What do you see as that growth um, meaning for the city of St. Louis? So the city, it's, it's kind of interesting because it goes back to this data question. And I, I, I think about this, I don't say it every day, but I think about it at least once a week. Because depending on the data you use, you have a different story that you could tell about the city of St. Louis. And so there's a story that's happening in the central corridor about the millions and millions and maybe even you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment that's happening. And you see 
you see these uh, houses and condos for rent, and you're like, wow, this is this is like Chicago. It's like the the Gold Coast in Chicago. And then you're like, this is a good thing. You, know, you, you see you see things being built, and and you're like, okay, that. So there's data to support this, right? And then you see other data that's coming out that's saying, well, this is not good news. It's actually really bad news for the city. And then you see another data point from a different source and it says, well, the news is kind of mixed. And so it's hard. I think there, so when it talks about this, when you talk demographically about the city, I think there's a recognition that, um, I guess I could share this because I think it's going to be public here in a little bit anyway. Uh, I think there's a recognition that, that the city's changing demographically and it's been changing. I mean, we've, we've, we have these charts now that, that show this, but um, there is an exodus of the black population from the city. And it's, it's not new, but what's new is that uh, the exodus of the white population is declining. So, so the exodus of the black population is is on track to exceed the white population. And so that's that's gonna, if things continue, um, the city's on track to become a majority white city again. Uh, and that's, that I think for a lot of younger people, that's new, like, because I think a lot of people see St. Louis as a majority black city, especially if you, if you take this conversation of the redistricting um, that's happening, um, what the, what this means for the city if if you have black families who are leaving, um, maybe you have some black professionals who are still moving in who are single, um, but that that's not what's happening with the white population. And then you see, when you're talking about the city boundaries now, you think what well, you still see some growth in Latinos and Asians and multiracial. What what this means in 2030, for example, if this continues, um, and so it's it's. I think for me, it's this. Depending on the data source you use, you could have a different story, different theme that's there. So I think the city is becoming more diverse because it's, it has a growing Latino and Asian population. Um, but at the same time, I would I think you have to be concerned that you have a black population that's that's leaving, and it's leaving at a faster rate than the white population now, and and it's not leaving. I think the, the point of our research is like, if it's, if it's randomly leaving throughout the city, that's one thing. Like if it's, just, it's just a random process, but it's not random that they're leaving certain neighborhoods. And uh, the white population moving into the city is not random. They're moving into certain neighborhoods. And so these, these, um, these ultimately come down to decisions of where the city decides to invest and make neighborhoods safe and beautiful and where they decide not to invest. And so these, this is part of the research we've been doing over the past decade that, um, and it's not just the past decade, we're talking several generations of administrations where the investment has not been um, intentional to benefit all the residents of St. Louis. And so I think we're just starting to see uh, differential outcomes. And so, so I think the city, I think it's good that the city is becoming more diverse, but it's, some of the some of the points from these data points is like, but the city didn't grow at all, zero zero growth. And um, there's parts of the city that grew, and then there's parts of the city that that's experiencing an exodus. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the that people truly understand what what this means in the larger frame of things because it's even the exodus is even larger. It's a larger phenomenon for the region. Where I'll pull up, I can pull up the stats, but I think St. Louis is one of four regions in the United States, that maybe one of ten, that experienced a net loss of African American residents. Out, out of, it, it's a really small, and most of them are in California. Uh, then it's like Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit, and St. Louis. Every other region has experienced an increase in its black population. And uh, to me, that's a, that's a, it should be an alarm bell that's ringing to public policy officials. Like we, I would say as a region, we don't want to be in that category of, of losing our black population. 
Yeah. And it is so fascinating, especially because recently, um, you know, after Ferguson, a lot of the country looked to St. Louis for um, like kind of leading this racial reckoning within the country. So it is interesting that now, several years later, you're seeing um, a flight out of Black residents. And so what does that mean for the city? Um, And speaking more to the diversity that you're talking about, um, specifically within the Latino population, um, you've done some research on factors influencing Latino civic engagement. Um, What do you see as some common barriers for Latino engagement within the St. Louis context? So I so I'm not from St. Louis originally, so I, so I, I want to I want to preface that because some people may find this offensive. Um, but St. Louis is very parochial. It, it's, I've lived in many cities across the United States. Um, and, and it's a lot easier to get involved in civic engagement in other cities. Uh, but in St. Louis, if you're not part of the right group, it can be very difficult to get involved uh, and, to, and to get a seat at the table. And I, I see, I, I, I'm, I'm always amazed when I see these, because I've been here now for a while, so I kind of have a pretty good sense of, of how these parochial groups work. And I see groups just get reproduced, but they're reproduced on social ties. And I've been to a couple meetings, because um, I do a lot of work on immigration. I've been to a couple meetings because, uh, as immigrants come to St. Louis, they don't really recognize or acknowledge those social ties. And I think some of these groups are like, you need to recognize us because we are the original group of St. Louis. But the immigrants are like, I don't even know who you are. What high school do you go to has absolutely no currency for these groups. But that's still a meaningful question because it, it has meaning if you're from St. Louis. And so I'm always like this question, I lived in Chicago. This, this question had no meaning at all. I mean, it may, maybe it was like how to start a conversation and, um, but it has meaning here. And I've seen groups get created based on the meaning of that question. And so I remember being at one meeting like one of the, reasons that they were not anti-immigrant, but they were concerned because immigrants did not recognize the original stakeholders that were here in the region. And for me, I was like, huh, that comment probably would have never occurred in San Francisco or Los Angeles. And I'm not saying that they're not, and, and of course there's parochialism in those cities as well, but I think in St. Louis, uh, the parochialism is, is very, is very strong here. And I think it's, so when when Latinos, especially immigrants come to the region, uh, it's hard. I think it's hard to, I think it's it's changed a lot in the past five, six years because it, that, like I said, that question has no meaning for people not from St. Louis. Um, So as as more people from outside, I think it's a good thing, as more people from outside come in, I think that's a stupid question. It has nothing to do with, with what I want to do for the region and the city. Um, if I want to support Mayor X or Mayor Y, I, I'm here because I'm a concerned citizen. Right? Who cares if I went to school X or school Y to be a supporter? Um, so I think that's a good, I think breaking down, breaking down this parochialism is a good thing. And I think so as Latino immigrants come, uh, not just like immigrants, but just Latino, like you know, about two thirds of Latinos who are in the region are from outside, we're never born here. Like I was, I'm not from here. Uh, just about everybody I know who's, who's a peer, we're not born in the region. And so I think as more people from outside the region come in, they, 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 the question is asked, but it's not meaningful. Like I would never, like I would never form a civic group based on a social tie of, of, of people that have been to a certain school. And so I think that's a good thing, but it still happened. I'm, I'm still, it's still ha- these 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 groups are still formed based on some rem- resemblance of that question. Being someone who's lived in the St. Louis region, I I grew up in this region for most of my life. 
Um, I can definitely say that there is that sense of, you know, different parts of the county, different parts, like there's just like a sense of belonging, you know, in these names. And so your perspective uh, is important, right? People come outside and, and are helping to build a region, but also able to critique, okay, look, we gotta, we gotta break this down. We gotta make it more accessible. And you know, so for you know, looking at uh, Latino civic engagement, what are some of the ways that you've seen people navigate successfully and start to get involved and like find a foothold in the community once they arrive and once they're participating? So I think, I think one, what I've seen, it's fairly positive is um, I think civic engagement, this is my articulation of it is, I think there was the concern of the human condition that you want people to live with dignity. And so I think the churches have been very open, especially the Catholic church has been very open and like, let's talk about, um, let's talk about this experience. Let's give space and, and let Latino, especially Latino immigrants, um, kind of think about how to leverage um, the, the churches and the relationships that exist there and build interfaith relationships with, uh, with non-Catholic institutions. And so I think that's been a very positive thing that I think the archdiocese has done, right? The archdiocese was very intentional in saying that, that, that we have to create, we have to create this office. We have to invest money and bring people in. If you really want engagement, it costs money. It cannot be free. And there are a lot of people who are willing to do it out of the goodwill of their nature. And that's great. But as institutions, you have to invest in creating that, that civic infrastructure and it costs money. And so um, the archdiocese invested in the, and you can see what the fruits of that investment are, I think. And so that's one. Um, I think with social media, you've seen um, a lot of um, Latinos uh, learning that social media is a very positive way to tell stories and uh, to get people excited about change. And so I've, I've, I've seen that, that space used very positively. Um, I also think um, because it's, it's just an example of the St. Louis city um, process of redistricting the wards, um, people being able to communicate with each other and build coalitions. And so this is not simply a Latino issue or it's simply not an Asian issue or it's not a black issue. It's an issue of, of fairness and representation. And so that's, that's been fairly uh, impressive to, to kind of see um, being vocal. And, uh, and I think it's okay. I think it's okay to have public um, disagreement. I don't think disagreement is a bad thing. I think uh, you should talk about these issues um, and come to some type of consensus of I'm not going to get 100%. You're not going to get 100%. But let's let's come and let's talk about these issues and how can how can we get to consensus on the public policy issue? You know, I want to say I, I'm familiar with the work of the Immigration Task Force in St. Louis and in the Archdiocese, and I've heard work that they've done on the immigration front. And so it's really interesting that you mention the connection of churches for Latino residents because I that. That same thing I've heard with, you know, in the African-American community with the churches being a space of, of leadership, of empowerment. Um, so to see those connections there. I also want to touch back on something you just mentioned about coalition building representation in things like ward um, redistricting and things of that nature. There was a lawsuit in Illinois, in Chicago, connected to the maps uh, redistricting happening there. Um, and you're curious about, you know, your work obviously is, a, you know, you use maps to tell stories. Uh, you analyze maps, data to track everything from poverty, homicide, access to health insurance. So I guess like for you looking at this con conversation, um, what, how, has, how has this process for you and the data and the work that you've already done, how has data, I guess, played a role in shaping this conversation around redistricting in St. Louis um, and, and kind of looking at the future of that? conversation in the city? So I think I've been fortunate because I've been, I've been part of conversations throughout the United States with the redistricting of 2020. And I, I, I can share this because I, I'm, I'm fairly transparent, but uh, I was invited maybe seven or eight months ago to be a consultant in Chicago um, because they're going to redistrict in their wards as well. And to even... Um, 
uh, a couple of law firms reached out to me as possibly being an expert witness and, and so forth. And, and, but I was very clear that I'm an academic and that the work that I do is, it's not political. We, I believe in democracy and I believe in giving people power and that um, it, it, I was gonna be driven by a different mission than, than some of the groups were there. And then I think once, once that message was heard, I was no longer invited to be at the table, which is fine, which is fine. Um, um, so I, I do believe that there is a place to have this conversation about um, data, about um, democracy, making maps. And I guess my, my goal is to give the data to the people, let the people speak, let them use it. Um, I, do have a, I do have a problem though with politicians making maps because I think there's a conflict of interest there that uh, it's kind of like, I'm gonna write a job description for myself and I'm gonna write it just so I can get the job. And it I know it happens all the time, but I think a, a, jo a job description should be for the public good, the common good. And um, I think what's different today is that we have technology that can make maps that do not involve politicians. And people are afraid to engage in that technology because the maps will look different. And I know it's a, it's a very sensitive subject and I, I, I've had several discussions with people and I, I understand the sensitivity of it. Uh, but at the same time, you have to embrace, you have to embrace that the, the technology is not going away and the data is not going away. And so there, there, there are people who are using this technology to try to understand like that's the map that should be made and do we like it or not, they're, they're making that map. They're not making it public, but they're like, that's the map that, that one day will be made. Let's let's make sure that map does not get made. And I and I think we have politicians like yeah, we don't want that map either. <laughs> uh, and so it's on, it's on both sides, right? That that uh, when you make when you make maps that are for the common good, uh, I would argue everybody wins and politicians lose. I'm working with type of conversations with friends in Chicago and the the process and. It's very clear that um, those those maps that were presented were probably not maps that were, that are objective. But but people are afraid that to, to, if you made objective maps, people are going to lose power. Um, but it goes back to one of the points that you talked about earlier about th that the diversity of the United States is changing. And uh, so, as a demographer, we look at our data. So in many ways, we're studying the past, the recent past, to try to get a sense of what the near future looks like, what the long-term future is going to look like. And so we know we have pretty good because we're a pretty stable country. Our birth rates are stable. Our death rates are fairly stable. So we have, we have a pretty good projection of, of what the country is going to look like 10, 15, 20 years from now. Um, and so, so we, we know that the United States is changing demographically. Um, and we know what those projections um, will look like in 2070. And I know a lot of people don't like to talk about this, but I'm always engaged in this discussion. Like, yeah, 2040 is kind of an interesting year. We're right to 2070, 50 years from now. And so I have a child who's six years old. I'm like, when he's 56, and it, it's hard for us to kind of understand this because I won't be around. Um, but imagine what his his experience is like in his his. Um, He's a kindergarten. And you look at his kindergarten grade, and you're like, that is one of the most racially diverse grades I've ever seen in my life. But that's going to be his experience in 2070. That he, he's not going to know anything different, except that in his grade school, there's like 30 languages spoken. <laughs> he's interacting with people from different backgrounds. That's the, that's the norm for him. And that's going to be the norm in 2070. And so it's hard for a lot of people to understand that the norm in 2020 is, is not going to be the norm in 2070. 
And so we have to really understand um, that our politics are going to be impacted by this. I, I always say, you know, as a demographer, I'm more interested in studying five-year-olds because five-year-olds, 50 years from now, that's the future of the country. Study that cohort because we're just, we're a passing generation, right? But that generation is going to be pushing us out. In, in 15, 20 years, uh, they're going to college and then they graduate from college, they're going to be going into the profession. Right, they're your future doctors, your dentists, your lawyers, your your business men and women. And so, if you go to a kindergarten class in um, Parkway, uh, and you look at that diversity that's there, you're like, that's what America. That's what America's going to look like in 2070. And it's, I think it's 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 not what we grew up with, right? And if we grew up in an segregated area. How could we also use data in general to inform revitalization efforts in the city and county and surrounding metropolitan area? Yeah, so I think I think one of the most important things that's happening is that some data is becoming privatized. And so to get access to it, you have to pay for it. And so when it talks to, I mean, I'm always amazed by the amount of data that comes from the government that should be free, but then it's 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 um, taken over by companies and it's repackaged and it's sold. And it gets to this idea like we've been doing some work on uh, helping helping revitalize some neighborhoods in North St. Louis, and uh, the data is there, but it's very expensive to get it. It's not free, but the, the original data source comes from the government, which which should be free. And so um, it's always this tension there between, isn't that, that's government data. It should be accessible to the public, but the government simply doesn't have the resources to do it, right? And, but the companies can come in and, and I understand it. I understand the role that these companies have. And so I don't wanna poo-poo it. Um, but there's, there's a lot of good data that, that, that should be made available to the public when trying to reimagine urban spaces and say what what can exist in these parcels, or what type of grocery stores or businesses can can go there based on what's being developed in other parts of of competing neighborhoods, so that that is there, but it's not free, and it's and it's very expensive. And as a professor, we have I have a pretty good idea of how to get it, but I can't get it all because it's it's behind paywalls, uh, and so. Um, we were doing some work on gentrification in, in North St. Louis. And we did our best to, to, to give the neighborhood organizations what we could give them using our resources here at SLU. Um, but even then it was it was it was expensive. I mean it was it was not a nonprofit could not get this data. And I, I just encountered this uh, a week ago. Right? We have access to data, and when they, when a nonprofit tries to get it, they have to pay for it. And so it's some, it's an unfortunate circumstance that that exists there when when the nonprofit's trying to to provide services for um, food insecurity households, right? Or looking at um, vacant parcels that potentially could become single family homes. Um, so these are these are larger issues and. Um, so I think that there's a role there, and it it, it should be become more available. Um, but I, I would also say a lot of people are afraid of that. I think a lot of a lot of people in power are afraid of that. That that it may offer a different perspective of how money should be spent or how resources are allocated. And what can we do instead of being afraid of the data? How can we use data to be hopeful about the future? How do you do that? So we, uh, hopefully we're gonna get back to this. I heard that we can bring people, visitors back to campus, uh, but we used to have community hackathons. And so we invited community residents to campus, to our labs, uh, because we have, we have data that um, we pay money for it. But for that one day, it's free to the public. And so when we first did this, people would come, I can't believe this is free, 
you're you're here on campus. You can you can download as much data as you want. And and so we had, I remember this, so we would we would always sell out. It's not we don't make money, it's just free. But we would always we have a certain number of reservations that we can have because you have to be on a computer. And uh, so the second year we had it, um, one of the people brought in one of these hard drives. And at that time it was like probably 250 gigabytes. Um, like I, I'm gonna download everything. Uh, because that, that was the one time that they were able, they felt empowered. Like I have the data, it's gonna be free this one day and I'm gonna take it back to my community. And he was, he was so excited because he was just downloading, 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 downloading as much data as he could get because it was, it was free and it was accessible. And um, we had one scheduled in the month of um, March, but it got canceled because it was the week that COVID happened. And it was the week after our spring break and it got canceled. So we, and then we told we can't have people on campus. We can't have visitors on campus. But I, I heard that that, that policy is gonna change in January. And so once, once we can start having visitors back on campus, uh, we will continue our um, community hackathons again. And each, each year is a different theme. So one year it was on immigration, one year it was on the Dalmore divide, uh, one year it was on a lead poisoning of children. And so each theme we have, each year we have a theme, like if this is your issue, come and download data. And most of it's free, um, but to download it in the way that we're able to download it, you know, it would take somebody, you know, anywhere from 60 to 80 hours. And because of some of the subscriptions that we have, you can download it in two, three minutes. And we have a project that's called the Biography for uh, Democracy. And the idea was, because um, I get so many requests for data and I started to see a pattern, like they're asking for the exact same data that this person's asking. So now when we get uh, a request, if, if I think it's gonna be a common request, we just put it up on, in the cloud and we give access to, it, to, to anybody to it. It's, I think people are like, wow, I didn't even know this was available. Uh, but then there are companies who do the exact, almost the exact same thing who are charging like a thousand dollars a month. So it's just, it's just a different, my motivation where I come from is different than their motivation. That's amazing. Um, and obviously it can be revolutionary and transformative for communities that don't have the resources to have these subscriptions or be plugged into these networks. Um, so you touched on something that was very hopeful, but we ask every one of our guests, um, this question, what gives you hope for the future? Um, what kind of, you know, when you, when you think about, think ahead, you can see these trends, what kind of is the bright spot that you see, uh, you know, that keeps you going? I think uh, what gives me hope, well, I'm a, I'm a fairly hopeful person myself. Um, um, I, I, I'm able to be critical and provide critiques and I'm, I'm even critical of my own, my own work. Um, but I think in the end, um, it, it comes down to what I'm doing as an individual. What can I do in my position of privilege um, to, to help a person and help their child try to live the American dream, improve the human condition? And so I think as, as long as I'm in this position as a professor, and I have access to these resources. I'm hopeful that that people will see that it's available to them, and that uh, I don't see any, at least here at SLU, nobody will ever say, "Now stop doing this," because it's it's not part of our mission. I think if I was at a different university, they would probably say, "That's that's not our mission." Um, but this is, I think. It's embraced by our university, we're a community service institution. Um, and so uh, it works, I think it works in parallel with, with our university. So I think I, I'm hopeful that, that our university will continue to allow me to, to do what I'm doing. Um, but I also think uh, when I look at the younger generation um, and I, I, I look at how they understand privilege and how they understand the common good. 
even though they may not use the words the common good. Um, I can I can see it just anecdotally through my children that 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 they're that they're very hopeful that what what I experienced as a child is something that, that they'll they'll probably never experience. I, I should say no, but that that I think they're they're very uh, aware that that um, they have different opportunities and they don't have to reproduce and create institutions of exclusion of discrimination uh, and that they can they can stop it in their generation so i really do i think if you if you look at this um and when i look at the younger generation i'm like this would never exist 30 40 years ago i'm just because the processes were there was de facto segregation happening all over the place and it's still happening today uh but i i see intentionality to break it down uh, I'm not sure it will ever solve these issues that 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 were created through through the Supreme Court and the real estate agencies and uh, the disproportionate impact on public education. But um, I think I want I want to be hopeful that um, that there's a younger generation that, that will learn from our mistakes and say like. Our generation is different. We're much more diverse. We we uh, we appreciate that diversity. Like I, I didn't grow up in a very diverse. Even though it was a very, had a very large Mexican population in my town. I think we only had two black families. Um, and so it wasn't until I moved to to Lincoln, and really when I moved to Washington D.C., that I really understand what the black experience was about. Right. Um, so, but my children are exposed to not only the black experience, but the Indian experience. And so for them, it's like, this is very common. Is to try to understand and appreciate different cultures and, um, and say that this is just part of my life, things that I value. And so, uh, like I said, I think in 2070, um, it's gonna be a very different country than 2020. And just look at, you get a chance to just, just kind of separate all these cohorts and just look at that cohort that's five and under. And you'll see it's it's just radically different. It's a radically different cohort of, of Americans. Thanks for being with us as we dive into this civic moment. You can find the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement on Facebook and Instagram. And you can subscribe to the Civic Moment everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to drop a five-star review and give us your feedback in the comments.